Lila is our scripture reader for today. She will be reading from Genesis 2, 15 to 25. Our scripture reading for today is Genesis 2, 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for this story. Um, we're thankful for the weirdness of it, uh, the mythic quality that it has. Uh, you read it and it feels like there is so much profound truth here. Um, would you help us to uh, receive some of it this morning as we think about our own lives and our own worlds, um, which look very different from the Garden of Eden? Um, would you help us to hear your voice in this story and to follow it? Uh, Father, I pray for wisdom, I pray for humility, uh, I pray for help this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So if you're new here, this is our fourth Sunday in a sermon series called Verily, on knowing and truth. Um, typically, our practice as a church is to just pick a book of the Bible and work through it, and so we were in the Gospel of John but usually about once a year, we'll take a topic and look at the whole Bible uh, through the lens of that topic. And so we are um, slowly building out a picture of truth uh, according to the Bible and how we as people might come to know that truth. What is truth and how do we know it? Uh, rather than start at the beginning of the Bible, though, we started three weeks ago at the center of the Bible. Uh, we started with Jesus standing before Pilate. Uh, beaten and bloodied, about to be crucified, and Pilate asks him two questions. What is truth, and where are you from? What is truth? And in that story and in the Gospel of John, we learn, we are told that truth is Jesus. Why? Because Jesus comes from above, because of where Jesus is from. Jesus is God from God, the source of all truth. To know Jesus is to know the truth. And to know the truth is to know Jesus. So when we learn some cool fact about birds or literature or cooking or whatever, we are learning something about Jesus. 
who created all things, his will, his mind, and strength, and heart. And that means that all truth has a personal quality to it. Uh, The philosopher Esther Meek writes, to say that Jesus is the truth should not depersonalize Jesus. Rather, it should person truth. To say Jesus is the truth does not make Jesus less personal, less obscure, more abstract. It makes truth more personal. That's why her book is called Loving to Know, because loving is the path to knowledge. Loving is the path to knowing. In order to know anything, we have to start with love. We must become friends with the truth, is what John Frame says. And so if knowing requires love, then that means it requires all the virtues that love requires. So commitment and patience, respect, humility. You cannot know the truth without these qualities. And this isn't true just for religious truths or spiritual truths. Jesus personalizes all truth because Jesus personally created all things. Uh, Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so everything we see and everything we don't see has God's fingerprints on it. He thought of it. He created it. He sustains it. Actively, it exists because he chooses for it to continue it to exist. He will judge it, redeem it, and make it new. And so that's why for the last two weeks, following that sermon on John 19, we meditated on Psalms 19 and 104. Uh, We looked for God's glory and creation. We looked for his fingerprints. Because if God made the world and everything in it, it must be glorious. It has to be. We don't know the truth. We don't understand truth until we can see his glory in it. Romans eleven thirty six. For from God and through God and to God are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, worship and glory is easier to come by when we consider big, amazing things like galaxies and volcanoes and oceans. But what about truth that is more relevant to our daily lives? Uh, Things like food and technology, people, our own bodies. These realities are still glorious if we just stop and think about them. You can watch a documentary about any of those things, Chef's Table, and you'll, you'll have an opportunity to pause and consider the glory of food and the glory of people. But they exist to do more than reveal God's glory. They exist for us to not just stare at them. It's knowledge we're supposed to use. And so how do we know what to do with those truths, truths that are usable for us. Well, these truths are still ultimately meant to point to God and Jesus, like all truths, which means that they are meant to be followed. So we, if they point to God, we follow them to God. If all truth is personal, and not generically personal, but personal as in from, through, and to Jesus our Savior, if that's what it means for truth to be personal, then it's not just meant only to lead me to worship, it's meant to be trusted. To be personal and to be from God means truth is to be received and obeyed. So if Jesus is meant to be followed, so is the truth that he created. Disciples of Jesus must be disciples of the truth. And so knowing truth looks like trust. It looks like receptive obedience. And that is the focus of today's sermon in Genesis 2. 
Genesis 2 is the second creation account in the Bible. Uh, People are often bothered by the existence of two creation accounts, but it's actually really, really helpful. It gives us a full, like almost like hologram picture um, of what is going on. These accounts together reveal more than they would reveal apart. Uh, The first reveals how the transcendent God of Genesis 1 created all things, but then we get the second chapter, Genesis 2, and we see how this transcendent God is also a deeply personal God who desires communion with his creatures. Truth wants to be with us. Uh, The past two weeks on glory focused more on God's transcendence, the Genesis 1 vision of God, and this week we zero in on his imminence, his personal nature. Um, Creation is not just glorious, it is also a gift. And gifts aren't random, uh, they are given from one person to another. And that's what we see in Genesis 2, with God bringing gift after gift after gift to Adam. If you read it, that, that's the feel of the chapter, is that God is just constantly bringing things to Adam. He's introducing things to Adam in love. Literally, everything in Genesis 2 the garden, Eden, the, uh, the animals, Eve, everything exists as a personal gift from God, and we are meant to see God in those gifts. More than that, though, to, for our purposes, even Adam's knowledge is a gift from God. So the items are gifts, but everything Adam knows, he knows because of God's love. Genesis 2 is describing the relationship between a son and a father. It's using that uh, image. Genesis 2, 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So Adam is the son of God, And like any son with his father, he learns from his dad. And this kind of father-child relationship is what uh, we should pursue as creatures. Uh, The posture of all human knowing, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In verse 16, we have God giving Adam both naturally revealed knowledge and specially revealed knowledge. And so natural knowledge is that which could be known from nature itself. Um, It's embedded in reality. Revealed knowledge can't be discerned from nature. It requires God to speak specially. And so first natural knowledge, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God is stating the obvious to Adam. You may surely eat. All this is yours, a gift from me to you. This natural knowledge is also what God gives to Adam when he brings all the animals to him to name. When Adam names the animals, he's simply naming what he sees in nature. God isn't telling him what to see. God isn't telling him how to name these animals. He's just bringing his creations to him to name. This is natural revelation. But God also gives Adam, in this story, special revelation, special knowledge. Uh, Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And so verse 16 is natural knowledge, verse 17 is revealed knowledge, special revelation. Adam would not have known 
the danger of this tree, the truth about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, without God's instruction. In fact, he would have probably thought the obvious. If we look ahead in Genesis 3, what do we see? The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so Adam would have eaten it apart from God's warning to him, his special revelation. Interestingly, those same descriptors are some of the characteristics used by um, the psalmist to describe God's law in Psalm 19, the same items. Um, it is uh, appealing, it's a delight, it makes, makes one wise. Um, and if you remember too, later in the story, a copy of the law is kept in the Ark of the Covenant, and it's in the Holy of Holies, which is decorated like the Garden of Eden. And just like eating from the tree of the knowledge of, Eden, of evil would cause you to die, touching the Ark also brings death. And so there's a similarity, there's a connection between those two items. And so not only is Genesis 2.17 an example of special revelation, it is our first example of God's law. This is a law of the Lord. And that's why breaking it necessarily results in death. Now, you can't have a sermon series on knowledge and not talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the forbidden tree. What does God's law have to do with knowledge? Especially this law, which looks like it forbids knowledge. Uh, humans have never liked limits. And in a scientific age, we especially dislike limits on knowledge. We don't want anyone to tell us what we can't know. Uh, we generally believe that if truth is out there, we should have access to it. We should know it. It would be good for us to know that truth. And so why this tree? This tree bothers us. We do the story of God every year, and people do not like this tree. Um, now, what is the tree? Most scholars believe that the knowledge here is more about determining truth than discerning truth. Um, and there's a difference there, right? God determines truth. He decides what is true. Man discerns truth. And so we can see this difference in the way God speaks in Genesis 1 and the way mankind speaks in Genesis 2. Uh, Abigail Favale writes, in the first account, God uses language to create the cosmos ex nihilo, from nothing. He draws order and being out of nothingness. In the second account, the man uses language to name what God creates. So divine speech makes reality, human speech identifies reality. So when God forbids the knowledge of the tree, what he's actually doing is warning Adam to remember that he is image of God and not God himself. And this temptation to be like God, that's what Satan tempts Eve to do and what she and Adam both fall to in Genesis 3. Most scholars also believe that Adam and Eve, after a season of maturity, and we don't know what that is or what that looks like because it didn't happen, but after a season would eventually have been allowed to eat from the forbidden tree. So it wasn't forbidden forever, only for a short time. And that makes sense to us because, after all, Adam and Eve were mentally and emotionally infants. They were brand new. Too much knowledge could have been dangerous. And it was dangerous. Uh, this also makes sense to us personally and, and culturally because the danger of discovery is something we regularly wrestle with as a society, right? Gaining knowledge before we're ready for it. We're nervous about that. 
scientists exploring things that we actually not sure that we are ready to know. Uh, Tony Ranke explains, God saw this problem from the start. Adam and Eve entered the world naked and unashamed. They were childlike. So when God banned the first couple from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was not forever limiting man's scientific discovery, but temporarily holding back the scientific discovery of creation until man had matured into an adulthood capable of managing all the earth's potent possibilities. But like a child disobeying his father, Adam and Eve reached for a greater knowledge of the world that they were ill-prepared to handle ethically. Thus, traced back to the very first sin, our technological ethics have never kept up with our technological possibilities, and they never will. A haunting tragedy for sinners living in such a powerful world. So, technically, God is not forbidding knowledge, but he's linking knowledge first to our role and our readiness. And this is still important for us to grapple today as we think about knowledge in a world where so much is available to us. Uh, Living as we do in an age which believes, like Eve, that more knowledge is what will save us. If we only know more, then we will be saved. But wise gods, like wise parents, withhold some information from their kids. Sometimes temporarily, sometimes forever. Some knowledge should be forbidden. For example, you probably shouldn't know what your parents look like naked. That's probably like not something that you need to know. You don't need to know details about their sex lives. Sorry, youth, this is a Sunday where you're in here. Um, you don't need to know that. Those truths are not for you. Rarely do you need to know what people say about you when you're not around. That is a a knowledge that is unhelpful to you. It's not necessary. You don't need to know what using heroin feels like. That's not a necessary thing. God can, can forbid that and you'll be okay. Because you can still know that heroin is not good for you without having to experience it. And I would argue that even if you had the opportunity to experience it without consequence, such knowledge would still probably not be a good idea. You can watch Westworld to sort of see that play itself out. There are lots of other things that God knows that you are not meant to know. You shouldn't know the day you will die. That's not something that will help you live a faithful life. The Bible does tell us that God knows the day you will die. But that is knowledge he will not tell you because he loves you. It's one of the reasons Christianity rejects fortune-telling. We are not meant to know the future. That's not how we're supposed to live. Uh, Even after the fact, you may not ever know why bad things happen to you or to people you love. Uh, God knows. God has reasons. Sometimes all we can do is guess, and that's a fine thing to do. Maybe we will one day find out in glory, but there's no guarantee. Job never finds out why all those terrible things happen to him. We don't get any indication in the story that he learns. He's blessed in the end, and he's happy and content, and he doesn't know why. Given all these examples, I hope you can see why the tree's presence in the garden is both reasonable and tempting. Both. Reasonable, it makes perfect sense that God would withhold some knowledge from Adam and Eve. Tempting, it's hard to have that and to walk by it every day. 
traditionally, curiosity, uh, it's surprising to most of us, it was surprising to me, is considered a vice. Uh, historically, if you a list of vice and virtues, curiosity is a vice. It kills the cat, right? Um, it was un it's under the sin of sloth, usually. Um, vices are basically out-of-control virtues. Uh, and so curiosity is out-of-control studiousness. Um, and who here hasn't spent too many minutes on the internet following some rabbit trail, right? Where you're learning knowledge, but it is taking you away from where flourishing is, right? And the clicks start innocently enough, but then it's 1 a.m. and you're still awake watching YouTube videos of The Voice. That's me, sorry. <laughs> so embarrassing, um, so embarrassing. Um, that was not in here, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, even innocent, mundane knowledge, there's nothing wrong with that. While it not, might not be forbidden in the same way as the tree, we might ask ourselves, is this needful? Is it good for me? At what cost? Especially when we have devices with an unlimited amount of knowledge. It, it takes extra discipline. God is requiring extra discipline from us to know what we should pursue. This is the vice of curiosity, sacrificing God's purpose because we're wanting to know what's around the next corner and the next and the next. And meanwhile, our true callings remain unfulfilled because we're stuck in Vanity Fair. Uh, the reality is we have so much information available to us, but the vast majority of it isn't meant for you and me. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Surely you can have all the trees. You have access to all the trees. There are 10,000 reasons to delight in the Lord. This one thing I'm withholding from you. Where might this forbidden tree of knowledge be located in your heart? Uh, what does its presence do to you, the thing that you can't know? When that forbidden fruit looks so good for food, it delights the eyes, it's powerful to make one wise. Do you trust God's limits? Do you resent his no's? Are you bored with his yeses? The many, many other knowledge trees that God has given you to eat from. Are we content with our place in the cosmos? Are we content with God's timing that maybe we'll know, but not now? Are we okay with God's law, even when we don't understand it, even when the why is ambiguous to us? Is God's revealed no sufficiently satisfying knowledge? And most importantly, is our relationship with the person of God more precious to us than the object that he is withholding from us? The flow of the text spends most of its time and returns to natural knowledge, and it just camps out there. So Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, this is spoken by God, so in some sense I guess you could think it's revealed, but it really is natural knowledge because God never shares it with Adam, right? 
he never shares his idea. Instead, he leads him on a path of discovery to discern the truth for himself. So verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, again, our naming isn't creating reality. Adam's not able to create creatures from the ground. Um, It's describing the reality that he sees, that God has gifted him. But that naming still expresses his dominion as an image bearer. And so if you look at Genesis 1, God names in the first few days, he names like night and day and sky and earth and ocean, but then he stops naming things because he leaves it for us. That's the job that we fulfill, is as scientists exploring the world and identifying what we see. Uh, Adam is here humanity's first scientist, what we used to call naturalist. He's studying and cataloging the creatures of the world. God has given humanity dominion over the creatures, and this is expressed as Adam names them. Notice, though, how God is still active, even when it comes to Adam's natural knowledge. God brings the creatures to Adam, and that is still happening today. Um, God is still bringing his creation to us. As we go out into the world and discover more and more about our universe and ourselves, God is sovereignly bringing truth to humanity as we discover it. Uh, Abraham Kuyper wrote, humans cannot introduce anything into nature. They can only derive things from nature, since it is not humankind but God who causes it to be present in nature and who created nature. In the same way, God already knows Adam is alone and that it's not good, and so God lovingly leads him to that knowledge. He creates dissatisfaction in Adam so that Adam might receive Eve. And so all that to say, Adam knows nothing, nothing, without the presence of God bringing him knowledge. And we know nothing. Again, all knowledge is personal, and that requires two persons. Um, And all knowledge is relational. In order for something to be personal, it has to be relational. There is no singular, solitary person, even in God, who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one God. And that's actually the main problem that God identifies with Adam being alone. His knowledge will always be limited without another human person to know with and through and for. He cannot fulfill his calling to be the image of God, to be the likeness of God alone. All knowledge, and especially self-knowledge, is based in relationship. Uh, Charles Taylor writes, no one acquires the languages needed for self-definition on their own. That's a profound statement. You cannot know yourself without the presence of others. Um, It's wild to see the effects of solitary confinement on people's minds that very quickly, very quickly, when people are separated from others, they begin to lose themselves and lose reality. Personhood requires two persons, at least. And this is clearly the main point of Adam naming the animals in Genesis 2, for Adam to realize it is not good for 
Adam to be alone. He cannot fulfill his God-given purpose by himself. So Genesis 2, 20 to 25, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. There is way more depth here than we can plumb and than I even understand. <laughs> um, but here are just a few important points for our conversation on knowledge um, and personhood. When God created woman, Adam was recreated. And you can see that in the text. God puts Adam into a deep sleep. He opens up his flesh and removes a rib. This is, quite frankly, a death and resurrection scene. To be put into a coma and then opened up, closed up, and then brought back to life. And then, in the Hebrew, Adam actually renames himself when he sees the woman. And so Genesis 1 and 2, there's multiple words for men and women, male and female, for sex and gender, and uh, they're all throughout Genesis 1 and 2. Um, before this scene, though, God had named Adam Adam in Genesis 1 because he came from the ground, Adama. And so that's where Adam's name comes from. He's from the ground. Um, it's a generic word. Um, it just means human. It can be used in Hebrew for men and women, um, male and female, uh, for either gender. And uh, in verse 22, though, God brings the woman to Adam in verse 22. Um, but then when Adam speaks in verse 23, when he sings, he renames himself. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And so he changes his name. He no longer uses, or at least in this song, he doesn't use Adam. And Abigail Favale writes, prior to this moment, the man is called the Adam. This then is a moment of mutual recognition. The man is both naming woman and renaming himself. It is through encountering her nature that he is finally able truly to understand his own. That there is a realization about himself that is happening in the sight of the woman. That's why it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. Without Eve, he could never understand himself. He was just one of the animals who also came from the ground, right? He was no different. How am I any different? But in seeing Eve, he sees himself. Uh, it is hard to comprehend what this was like, um, what it was like for Adam before the creation of Eve, um, because we just have no category for a world without multiple people. Um, but we know it wasn't good, and we can imagine it wasn't good. 
that we would still feel the the difficulty of solitary confinement, even if we were surrounded by animals. There would still be a loneliness present, right? God himself says it's not good. But, it, but, you know, given the fall in Genesis 3, we might be tempted to believe it would have been better for Adam to just stay alone. Like, maybe that would be a better world if he was just all by himself, living forever, tending to creation. But then we read and we understand deeply just intuitively, Adam's response. Like, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's the first time in the text where Adam really comes alive, where you really see Adam. He was, he's confusing to us before this moment when we sense and we, we feel like we see his soul. He'd seen a parade of animals, amazing living creatures like himself in so many ways but not in the most important ways there was nothing compared to seeing another human being and not just a generic human being but a human being which fit him a person that matched him not in an identical way but in a corresponding way a reciprocal way a difference which enabled equality Favale, again, our bodies simultaneously proclaim our individual personhood and our capacity for relationship. Uh, Pope John Paul II calls this the spousal meaning of the body. Um, And he was the Pope, so he was single, and he knows Jesus is single, and so the spousal meaning of the Bible is not, spousal meaning of the body does not only apply to spouses, um, but to all people. And for him, the spousal meaning of the body is how our gendered bodies communicate to us that we are created free, but free to give ourselves to others in love. We are created for other people, for family. Uh, The purpose of human beings is to become a reciprocal gift And Adam could not experience that when it was just him and a bunch of animals. He needed another person. He needed uh, to no longer be Adam, but to be Isha and Ish. He needed to give love and receive it in turn, a gift which has the potentiality to create life. And it's maybe the closest we'll ever get to creation from nothing, is is these babies who are miraculously... Um, around us now. This meaning is revealed entirely to Adam by simply seeing Eve's physical body. He hasn't talked with her. He just sees her and sees her naked body, and he explodes in praise and in self-awareness. This is why, what, whatever is going on here, whatever mystery is here, This is why gender and sexuality conversations are so important to who we are as people. It's just not enough to say that gender is a social construct. Um, That is surely true uh, and very important, but it doesn't eliminate the physical realities at play because all knowledge is socially constructed, right? We can't know anything without a relationship with other people, many other people right? But reality is not socially constructed. God constructs reality. 
social constructs are, att- are our attempts to make sense of God-given reality. And the important question which we have to engage with humility and hope and gentleness and kindness is to what extent our constructions are faithful to reality and reality's creator. Uh, that's a super hard conversation and there's so many layers to it. Um, but it's a worthwhile conversation uh, for us and for everyone we know. Um, and that's clear, that uh, hopefulness, uh, that importance is clear in the last verse of chapter, 20, of chapter 2, which we'll uh, close with. Genesis 2, 25. It has to be one of the most striking sentences in all of history, really. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What was that even like? To be completely innocent, naked and unashamed all the time. You didn't have to do anything distracting, no like mood music or anything like that. Just you, together with another person, without any shame at all. Adam and Eve were satisfied with how they were seen by God and each other. I think the important connection here is the harmony between the visible and the invisible. He was naked. That's a physical, visible reality. And he felt no shame, which is an invisible reality. The beauty of Genesis 2.25 is how those two come together. And sin's immediate tragic effect is to disrupt that harmony. That's the first thing that happens. The interior and exterior don't match, and so what do they do? Adam and Eve literally reject their bodies. Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve's first reaction to sin was to hide their physical selves, to reject the goodness of God's gift. Favali again, their naked bodies, once a source of wonder and joy, now elicit discomfort and shame. Self-gift has become self-erasure. The sudden impulse to hide is a sharp contrast from the man's free and full participation in the visibility of the world that is depicted earlier in the text. Is it any wonder that teenagers who spend more time than any other generation in disembodied spaces online are also those who are most uncomfortable and most likely to reject their bodies. How tech titans dream of uploading their souls to the cloud. They want to reject their bodies. We look down and we don't like what we see. Uh, Lucy and I were wandering Valencia last night, um, waiting to pick up Trinity, and we were killing time, and we wandered into dog-eared books, and there was an author reading happening. And the author, uh, I was only in there for a minute, um, but she had written a memoir about her experience of amnesia after a car accident. So she's talking about going through life. Um, And the excerpt she chose to read, I I guess, or they chose her to read, so it must have been significant, 
uh, was about looking at herself in a mirror. And she said, we forget how violent mirrors can be, forced to remember how the body is a cage. Being reminded that I have a body made me anxious. That is not the way our bodies were meant to make us feel. Our bodies are not cages. They are revelations. They are truths from God to be known and embraced and delighted in and cared for and loved. And in a world that is still marred by sin, where bodies struggle under disease and violence, sexual violence, that is hard to do, but God's intention for our bodies is still as revelations. They are windows to the soul, which are themselves windows to God. We are temples of the living God. Our, our very bodies are. Genesis 1.27, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so John Paul II says the body, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and to be a sign of it. Last week, we spent time in creation pointing out God's glorious gifts. Do you believe that your body is a gift? Do you trust God with how he made you? Uh, Next time you're naked... Don't focus on your own thoughts. Don't imagine other people's thoughts. How does God feel about your body? For some of you, that is an important place of healing for you, and probably for all of us, given Genesis 3. But remember, he knit you together in your mother's womb. He formed your body Be naked and unashamed before God. I'd encourage everyone here to read Song of Songs sometime. And don't spiritualize it. Don't read it as a metaphor, though surely it it is in part. But read it as God's holy affection for your physical body. The body he created and gave you. The same body he will make new when Christ comes again. What, uh, what parts of your body will you take with you into glory? What about your body will surprise you that it's still there in heaven? The part of you that you hate, but God loves. There's a, a branch of theology, a young branch of um, the theology of disability. And, it, and people are asking themselves, like, what is disability? Um, and also, what is a theology of disability? So, like, what is God's purpose in disability? And some of the questions is, like, what disabilities will still be present in glory? Um, because some disabilities are really just disabilities of, like, that are, you, people ha- have difficulty adapting to this space. But if heaven is a perfect space, maybe people where we think are disabled, they won't be disabled. 
And when you think about some, some disabilities for sure are like a sign of corruption and death, so there'll be no death, there'll be no corrupting disability. But there are some disabilities that make people who they are. What quality about your body that you hate now will still be there? What scars, what wounds, like Christ's wounds, will still be there? In a virtual world, we have forgotten how our bodies are gifts. Physical revelations in the visible world of the invisible mystery hidden in God, which Pope John Paul will define as truth and love. That's the beauty revealed in Genesis 2.25, when Adam and Eve are naked and without shame, the coming together of truth and love. So that before the fall, Adam could be naked, truthful, and unashamed before Eve, because he knew that the more Eve knew the truth about Adam, the more she would love him. And so he could be naked and unashamed. In the same way, Eve could be naked and unashamed before Adam because she knew that the more Adam knew the truth about Eve, the more he would love her. It's beautiful. In their physical nakedness, truth and love come together. But then it broke. And we all know what that's like, where truth and love are not aligned. It remains broken. We're sinners. And so knowing the truth about me might not lead you to love me. The truth is no longer safe. Genesis 3.10, Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's heartbreaking. You can hear the heartbreak in the Lord when he says, who told you that you were naked? If God knew the truth, Adam feared, and we fear, he won't love me anymore, and so I need to hide. If God sees me naked, if you see me naked, if you see the truth, I won't like myself in your eyes. And so God is heartbroken. Who told you that you were naked? Verse 11, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then Adam and Eve reveal how bad it is. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There was no going back. Humanity couldn't unsee what they now saw. We, we tell our kids that when, when we're talking about what to watch and what we see and, and how we, the internet is. You can't unsee anything. Humanity couldn't unsee what they now saw. They couldn't unlearn their new knowledge. Their innocence was gone. But thankfully, there was still more for them to know. They couldn't go back, but they could go forward. They, there wasn't more really for them to know about themselves, but there was so much more to know about God that he is gracious and merciful, and so he can know the truth about you, even this truth, and still love you. 
The judgment of God in Genesis 2.17 was not the extent of God's fatherhood. It was just the beginning. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.6, For while we were still sinners, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took our shame. He hung naked on a tree. He purchased our forgiveness. He washes us clean. He puts a robe of righteousness over our shoulders, a ring of adoption on our finger that we might again walk boldly in the presence of God under his gracious eye and again know what it's like for truth and love to come together. To once again trust the truth, to be naked and unashamed, that is the hope to return to that place. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for this story that the Bible doesn't start with Genesis 3. Often we live like the story of God starts with Genesis 3. It starts with our sin, but it doesn't. It starts with your goodness and our goodness. It starts with our created, holy, pure, innocent bodies so that we might have an idea of what is true. What is really true? So that we might live in light of that today, but also look forward to the day when we're not back at that truth. We can't go backwards. But we move forward in truth, knowing everything about ourselves and, and you knowing everything about ourselves. We bring our bodies, we bring our wrinkles, our traumas, our difficulties, our disabilities, I don't know what we're going to bring, but I know that in the end, we again will be without shame. And we long for that day. And I pray that this church might be a place where truth and love meet, and a little Eden, where the love of God is known, even in the face of the all-seeing eye of God. Father, we love you. Uh, we ask that you would speak to us, help us to live in light of this and to respond with joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.